Hey, my name is Neil Rapley. I'm a researcher at Book of Mormon Central. I had a chance to sit down and answer some questions from our Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. We wanted to share these answers here as well and invite you to join us on Facebook to learn about more great resources to help with your Come Follow Me study this year. Again, that's the Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. Now, I hope you enjoy. All right, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. I hope you're all uh, enjoying yourselves, getting a chance to spend time with the people you care about and love, uh, or happy Single Awareness Day for those of you still looking for the people you love in this world. This is uh, another uh, week has gone by and we're ready to, I'm ready at least I should say, I'm ready to answer your questions about the lesson for this week. The uh, material is 2 Nephi chapters 6 through 10. This is Jacob's speech. Uh, really cool stuff in here. Great material to work with and uh, great questions. So uh, so let's go ahead and uh, start talking about this. Uh, before we do, as always, uh, the disclaimer, the answers given in this video do not represent the official position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Book of Mormon Central, or the Come Follow Me, Teach, Learn, Share Facebook group. Uh, and since they're kind of off the cuff for me, they don't even re represent my official position. I reserve the right to change my opinion on this stuff. Uh, should I ever uh, do more uh, research or learn some new things or someone point out that I'm wrong? But uh, also, I'd just like to remind everybody before we dive in that uh, these uh, questions that I'm answering are user-submitted questions. They're questions that some of you uh, out there have submitted to me, and uh, I am answering them. I bring this up because last week there was someone wondering why I did not address a specific question, uh, and the answer was because nobody asked it. <laughs> so I, I didn't answer I didn't answer it because nobody asked that question. It is true that most weeks I don't get to answer every question that's asked. So sometimes I do have to be selective. So, so just asking a question doesn't guarantee it gets answered, but not asking it at all means there's a 0% chance that I will answer that question. So just to encourage everyone, if you have questions and you want to hear what I have to say about it, please ask it when we call for questions at the beginning of the week. Otherwise, I can't, uh, I can't answer the question. It's, you know, I, I'm, I'm not making questions up. We're not, and I'm not going to try and read people's minds. And with that said, I do want to just kind of express appreciation for those who have asked questions. I appreciate all the questions that get asked, even if I'm, I don't end up answering them. It's usually an opportunity. I, I still have to read and think about the question before I decide whether I'm going to answer that one or not. And so it gives me an opportunity to think about some stuff and consider some stuff that usually I haven't thought about. And most of the time, uh, not me not answering the question isn't because it wasn't a good question or, uh, or whatever. It's just, you know, I've got time constraints on, on how much I can dedicate to going through these questions and, and answering them. And so I've got to, I just usually have to be selective. This week, however, is a first. I'm going to answer every single question because uh, unfortunately we didn't get a lot. We only got five questions and uh, I am going to talk about every single one this week. Uh, or at least I don't think, if I missed one, I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure I'm answering every single one this week. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, first question uh, here is from Janine Glenn. How much time has passed between Lehi's death at the beginning of 2 Nephi and the events of chapter 6? That's a good question. We don't have a definitive answer. Uh, it's something I actually was thinking about myself this week as I, as I was doing the reading. 
in particular because it makes it kind of sound, the way Nephi tells the story makes it all sound like it's just happening really fast. They get to the new world and then Lehi gives these blessings and then he dies and then they go and build the city and, and all this stuff is just happening and it's just boom, boom, boom. Uh, but uh, in 2 Nephi 5 verse 28, Nephi says that it had been 30 years since Lehi left Jerusalem by the time he and his people were establishing the city of Nephi there in chapter 5. So that gives us uh, our first key marker here, 30 years. Uh, Nephi goes on to talk about how after all of that, he started writing his record. And then the very last verse of 2 Nephi 5, he now says that 40 years have passed away. So the time it took him to start his record around 30 years and to get to the point where he was, I don't know if I could say caught up because a lot no doubt happened in the 10 years in between, but but then get to the point where he's establishing, he's talking about the people establishing the city of Nephi and whatnot, takes him 10 years to just record all of that from 1 Nephi 1 on. And so 1 Nephi 1, we know 30 years after the fact is when he's writing that, takes him about 10 years to get to 2 Nephi 5. Based on that, some might have a tendency to assume, okay, 2 Nephi 6 then starts at 40 years after Lehi left Jerusalem. I don't know that that's true though. Uh, certainly, um, during that 10 years between, uh, when Nephi starts writing his record and when he gets caught up to, uh, the events in 2 Nephi 5, things aren't just not happening, right? And, uh, the people are almost certainly being preached to that whole time and, and there's, there's things going on. Uh, and so it's possible that, uh, and in fact, I would argue likely that Jacob actually gave his sermon earlier than that. It's just Nephi, it takes him the time to get there. And then he's like, okay, now 40 years have passed. And now he starts telling us about uh, some things that have kind of been happening simultaneous to his uh, writing his record. And so I would, I would estimate that Jacob's speech comes a little closer to that 30 year mark uh, rather than the 40 year mark, though it's probably somewhere in between there. Um, and we don't have an exact year. Um, now to figure out how, you know, we still need to kind of figure out when Lehi died, and we do not have a direct record of that anywhere. But we can maybe kind of come up with a window of time here. The last date that we have before the 30-year marker is an eight-year marker in 1 Nephi 17.4. So that gives us kind of a pretty wide bracket uh, to sometime between eight years and 30 years after they left Jerusalem. Sometime in between there would be when Lehi died. I do think we can narrow it down a little bit more, uh, but I can't get an exact date. For one thing, realistically building a seaworthy vessel at Babylon, or not Babylon, <laughs> building a seaworthy ship at Bountiful uh, would have taken a few years. Uh, it's not something they just would do overnight. Uh, so if we factor in maybe two to three years for that, and then crossing the, crossing the oceans would have taken some time. It's likely that they kind of hugged the shore and stayed close to land as much as they could. Island hopping and things like that, they probably uh, took breaks and rested and resupplied and repaired their ship and things like that from time to time. And so I would probably guess somewhere between two to three years for the time uh, at sea as well. So that gets us to about 13 to 15 years after Lehi left Jerusalem, they're landing in the promised land. Sometime after that, Lehi gives his blessings to each of his sons and then passes away. Hard to say exactly how long that was. If we, going back to the first week that we did this, I talked about estimates for the age of Lehi. 
I didn't double check, but I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering right, I kind of came to somewhere around the early to mid 40s is how old Lehi was when they left Jerusalem. So, you know, 13, 15 years later, that puts him kind of in the mid 50s, maybe late 50s, maybe even, you know, around 60. And not super old, but getting up there, especially for antiquity. Later in the Book of Mormon, King Benjamin dies at 63. So, so you know, that's something to keep in mind. Other Book of Mormon figures live to pretty ripe old ages, though. And so uh, it's not impossible that he lived a long time after that. But I don't think it's terribly likely. Um, the wilderness journey, the, the voyage across the oceans, these are demanding physically, uh, just long, hard, arduous experiences that would take a toll on Lehi as, you know, the oldest surviving member of their party. We know, I, we don't know if Ishmael was older or younger than Lehi, but he passed away. He didn't even survive. Lehi makes it and he's probably the oldest one in the party. But this is, it, it takes its toll. And Nephi even talks about his parents being stricken in years and uh, their gray hairs were about to be brought down to lie low in the dust as they're sailing across uh, the sea and, and uh, Laman and Lemuel are rebelling. He talks about this stuff in, in 1 Nephi 18, 17 through 18. So I don't think that he, uh, the, the impression I get there is that Lehi is probably not in really robust health by the end. This has taken its toll. He's, he's aged quite a bit. He's aged, you know, at least 15 years. He's maybe a little fragile at this point and then you know, trying to settle uh, and build a new settlement in an entirely new environment and, and uh, uh, really challenging circumstances probably wasn't easy on him either. So I would guess, we don't know, but my guess would be Lehi doesn't live another five years uh, after, um, after making it to the promised land. So within the next five years or so, I would guess he passes away. That puts us at about 20 years after they left Jerusalem. And so there's about a 10-year gap there from there and the earliest point at which Jacob may have given his address. So that maybe gives us a little bit of a ballpark. Uh, a lot of guesswork was involved there, as you could no doubt tell. I hope it was reasonable and well-informed guesswork. I tried to do some homework on that, but who knows? Uh, I would be really surprised if it's drastically off, though, uh, maybe give or take five years on that number. Um, I was pretty conservative. Building a ship is a really, really uh, tall order and, and they're a small group and, you know, whether they had help from outsiders or not factors into this, but, you know, it could have taken a lot longer to build a ship. And in that case, Lehi probably doesn't survive nearly as long after they finally land. So th there's, there's some give and take there, but I would be really surprised if it's significantly different than about 10 years, maybe five to 15 years uh, gap is what we're looking at as a, as a kind of a window. But uh, yeah, somewhere around there. Uh, great question. Clay Cook, I have heard some talk concerning the three Isaiah hypothesis, but not much about the alternative. And your question's very long and, and well, your, your comment was very long and has this, uh, this long quote from uh, Alec uh, Moidier, the uh, evangelical uh, biblical scholar. I'm not gonna read all of that. So I'm just gonna skip down here talking about, uh, I'll explain this three Isaiah hypothesis in a second for, for those who aren't familiar, but um, Clay continues. One suggests that Deutero-Isaiah Deutero would not be available for Jacob and Nephi because it was written after they arrived in the new world. The other suggests that the three Isaiahs is an intellectual construct 
then there is the discoverer or the discovery of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls that pushed the age of the complete Isaiah back a thousand years. One supports the historicity of the Book of Mormon, the other questions it. What do the experts think? So for those who aren't familiar and are maybe a little confused by uh, what Clay Cook is talking about here, uh, most biblical scholars today believe that the Book of Isaiah was written by multiple authors. Uh, in general, chapters 2 through 39 are believed to uh, be primarily written by the original Isaiah in the 8th century BC. Uh, then chapters 40 through 55 is often attributed to someone they call Deutero-Isaiah, which is just kind of a fancy academic word for second Isaiah. And uh, then chapters 56 through 66 uh, sometimes are believed to be by a third Isaiah or Trito-Isaiah as the, the fancy academic word for it. Um, the problem with the book of, for the Book of Mormon is not necessarily this idea that there are multiple uh, people involved in the writing and compiling of the book of Isaiah. Uh, the problem comes in when it comes to dating those sources. Like I said, the original Isaiah is believed, you know, to be from the 8th century. Um, but second Isaiah, uh, which is chapters 40 through 55, is usually dated after the time Lehi left Jerusalem. And then third Isaiah is dated even later still after Lehi left Jerusalem. Uh, and so that starts to become or be perceived at least as a problem for the Book of Mormon uh, because Jacob quotes here in, in these section, he quotes chapters 49 through 52, uh, which are supposed to be second Isaiah after Lehi left. Um, Nephi earlier quoted chapters 48 and 49, again, uh, from that same portion. And later we have Abinadi quoting chapter uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, so these are seen by some as problems for the Book of Mormon uh, because of the academic views and, and the scholarly theories on this. Um, now, it needs to be explained a little bit uh, why scholars think this. One major reason is uh, from the prophecies of Isaiah. Generally speaking, uh, scholars assume accurate prophecies are written after the fact. Uh, they aren't actually prophetic. They are people writing as if they're prophetic um, after the, the events happen. That's just a general assumption. You can see why it would maybe make sense to make that assumption uh, for one thing, because uh, not everyone necessarily shares the same faith and same belief in the same prophets. Um, and so it's just kind of a way to uh, just make some assumptions and, and work on history and, and do the best they can. I don't think there's you know any animus from, from scholars for doing this. Uh, but that's the general assumption that goes, that, that, that contributes to this. And so because they assume accurate prophecy isn't real, therefore, because these parts of Isaiah seem to be accurately describing later time periods, they were probably written during those time periods. There are also other reasons, though. That's not the only or exclusive reason why scholars think there's multiple authors. Uh, the arguments can get pretty complicated and detailed. But they're based on historical details, they're based on literary details, literary style, and things like that, linguistics in the original text. Uh, and for example, there are Persian loanwords in, in the later parts of Isaiah, and so that makes scholars think it probably wasn't written until Persia had taken over the Babylonian Empire and the Jews were more regularly exposed to Persian. And so those kinds of details are, are part of that. And they shouldn't really be ignored or brushed aside, even if we believe prophecy is real, as I obviously do as a, as a Latter-day Saint and as someone who believes in the Book of Mormon. And we just talked about some really detailed 
prophecies from Nephi and Lehi these last few weeks. But there are, there are some interesting uh, puzzles here with regard to the authorship of Isaiah. So with all that said, here are actually a few resources if you want to see uh, what uh, what Latter-day Saints have had to say about this and have had to, uh, and how they've assessed its relationship to the Book of Mormon and, and used the Book of Mormon as part of the conversation for understanding the authorship of Isaiah. There's a paper by John W. Welch called Authorship of, uh, of the Book of Isaiah in Light of the Book of Mormon. You can find that in the uh, Book of Mormon Central Archive at bookofmormoncentral.org. Uh, it was part of a larger volume on Isaiah in the Book of Mormon that Welch helped edit. And then uh, there's also a paper by Kent P. Jackson called Isaiah in the Book of Mormon uh, in the book Reason for Faith or A Reason of Faith, uh, excuse me, in the book A Reason for Faith. Um, and that is available at the uh, BYU Religious Studies Center website. So uh, both of those papers are going to just kind of give you an overview of the problem. They'll explain uh, the, the scholarly view and the reasons for it. They both discuss reasons or summarize some arguments for the unity of Isaiah, um, which is this alternative view that Clay was talking about. And he quotes uh, Alec uh, Motier on, on that. Uh, they go over some of the arguments for the unity of Isaiah, uh, but they also point out ways that the Book of Mormon allows for some of the possibilities that scholars are finding. Uh, for example, the Book of Mormon lacks Isaiah 1. And when Nephi goes to quote from Isaiah, he starts at chapter 2, as we'll learn next week when we're studying. And Isaiah 1 is often believed to be a summary to the three parts of Isaiah that was written after they were all written, long after Lehi left. And maybe Isaiah 1 wasn't on the brass plates. Uh, that's a possibility. There's also no explicit quotes from Isaiah 56 through 66. So again, maybe that later part wasn't on the brass plates. Um, there's also nothing from like Isaiah 45, which is one of the chapters a lot of scholars think is the strongest evidence for late composition of that part of Isaiah. And so both of these papers will talk about some of those issues and illustrate some ways where the Book of Mormon is actually consistent with these theories, other ways where it's not, and uh, we uh, as Latter-day Saints and, and uh, as believers in the Book of Mormon would need to maybe consider all, all alternative points of view to the uh, to kind of the mainstream scholarly hypothesis. Um, a few other resources uh, that have some interesting uh, things to say in regard to this. There's a paper by Jeffrey R. Chadwick called The Great Jerusalem Temple Prophecy, Latter-day Context and Likening Unto Us. It's in the book Ascending the Mountain of the Lord. Uh, it's on the BYU Religious Studies Center website, uh, available. You can read the paper uh, online there for free. This paper is mostly about Isaiah 2, uh, but he does briefly have a section at the beginning that talks about the issue of the different parts of Isaiah and uh, offers uh, an approach that uh, that is consistent with the Book of Mormon. And he, he offers a unified Isaiah approach, but tries to offer some explanations for why there are some of the stylistic differences we find in the different parts of Isaiah still. Sidney B. Sperry uh, addressed this problem some time ago, and uh, his paper, The Isaiah Problem in the Book of Mormon, is in the Book of Mormon Central Archive at bookofmormoncentral.org. Uh, and also Hugh Nibley talked about it in uh, Since Camorra, chapter 5 of that book. On the, uh, and the title of that chapter is The Bible in the Book of Mormon. Um, both Sperry and Nibley are older resources. Uh, I don't go into detail. Uh, you know, they're going to offer similar things to what the others have, but 
Uh, just keep in mind, if you do go to those, they are a bit older. There may be some more recent information uh, that, that needs to be taken into account um, when considering those. Um, and then last of all, uh, there's some interesting stuff in Kevin Christensen's uh, paper, uh, Paradigms Regained, a survey of Margaret Barker's scholarship and its significant significance for Mormon studies. Um, chapter five of that study uh, talks about this issue in light of Margaret Barker's scholarship. Uh, Margaret Barker is not a Latter-day Saint and she does believe there are multiple Isaiahs and that the second Isaiah and the third Isaiah are writing after Lehi left. And so her views don't necessarily solve the problem, but there are some interesting wrinkles uh, that come from, uh, come from what she has to say that, uh, that Kevin Christensen actually brings out that are kind of interesting and support the Book of Mormon in some ways. That is unfortunately not available online uh, right now. Um, neither is uh, Hugh Nibley's uh, Since Camorra, unfortunately. So uh, if you can find physical copies of those, you'll be able to take a look at that. One thing that is online from Kevin Christensen though is a paper called Hindsight on a Book of Mormon Historicity Critique. Uh, that's Hindsight on a Book of Mormon Historicity Critique. It's in the BMC archive. He summarizes and actually kind of updates some of what he said in Paradigms Regained on Margaret Barker's scholarship. One thing that he actually brings up there that I think is kind of interesting, while Margaret Barker does believe there are multiple Isaiahs and that most of second Isaiah, that's chapters 40 through 55, date to after Lehi left, she has an interesting argument for the dating of Isaiah 53. She actually believes that's original to the first Isaiah, the original Isaiah, and uh, makes a really interesting argument that it was inspired by events in the life of Hezekiah, the king during Isaiah's reign, or not, not Isaiah's reign, the king reigning during Isaiah's time as prophet. Um, and that's actually really interesting and it makes Isaiah 53 available to be on the brass plates and to be used in the Book of Mormon. Um, and so again, uh, just so those are just some of the different resources. There's, I think, a lot of different things to consider. Um, my faith is not affected by this, but it is uh, an interesting, interesting question that uh, I think we need to keep uh, our, um, you know, keep our minds open about and keep, uh, you know, looking into different possibilities and, and keep exploring. All right, McKay Heasley uh, asked, is there some kind of cultural context that I am missing? The imagery Jacob gives for shaking his garments in 2 Nephi 9, 44. Uh, seems like a strange thing to do. And uh, I did see some of the conversation that went back and forth on that uh, in the Facebook group. And, and I agree, it would be very strange if President Nelson took off his garments and started shaking them at the pulpit of General Conference. Now, I'm not aware of any examples of this kind of practice specifically. I suspect there is a cultural context. And I'm going to talk about some kind of tangential uh, context that may help here, but I'm not aware of anything specifically about the shaking of the garment. So that's an interesting question. I'd like to look into that a little further when I have some time. Uh, but I think there's a couple of interesting things to point out here. Uh, first, in chapters seven and eight, when, Nephi, or when Jacob's quoting Isaiah, those chapters in Isaiah actually use garments as a metaphor quite a bit. Uh, they're not talking about shaking them and they're using them in different ways. Just go, pay attention to the references to garments there. It's a, it's a part of Isaiah's imagery and it, that may be what inspired Jacob to use his garment as a symbol as well. Um, to me, this very much reads like a, uh, a ritual gesture that you would do in a covenant making ceremony in antiquity. 
Uh, in ancient uh, covenant making processes, uh, it was highly common to use ritual gestures and to use uh, um, actions and things like that to symbolize what they are covenanting to do in order to uh, drive the point home. And in particular, uh, Jacob's action kind of reminds me of uh, the simile curses in ancient Near Eastern uh, covenants and treaties and things like that. Uh, and this usually involved um, an action with the curse that, uh, or punishment that you believe, that, that, that you were invoking to be upon the people if they break the covenant. And, you know, examples would be, you know, you would write their name on a piece of pottery or something like that, and you would then slam it down and break it and say something like, even as this, you know, is breaking, you know, you'll be broken and destroyed if you break my covenant. And um, those kinds of things. We see actually some examples of this later in the Book of Mormon. Uh, I'm going to blank on the chapters off the top of my head, but Captain Moroni, when he rents his garment, uh, he uses a, a simile, even as this garment is torn, uh, something, something to that effect. I didn't check that before coming on camera. I should have done that. There's also the scalping of Zarahem, uh, yeah, Zarahemna in uh, Alma 44, I think, or 43, one of those two, um, where basically uh, he scalped, they, point, they put the scalp on the point of the sword and say, even as this scalp has fallen to the ground, so shall you all fall to the ground if you don't basically covenant to stop fighting us. That's what uh, the Nephites say to the Lamanites there. So that kind of thing goes on in the ancient world. We have other examples of it in the Book of Mormon. Jacob's thing here is not quite like that, at least not as we have it in translation, uh, but it's very similar. It's very reminiscent of that, and I expect, I suspect that that is, we're getting close to the context of this gesture when, when we understand a little bit of that, because, you know, he takes off his garment and he's shaking it, and you got to keep in mind, this is not the modern world where, you know, we enjoy nice paved roads and sidewalks and all of that kind of thing, and we travel in cars and stuff like that. This is, you're walking everywhere, the roads are dirty and dusty and muddy, and, you know, your clothes are dirty all the time. And so when he takes his garment off and shakes it, you know, imagine you're shaking a rug out uh, from the back, on the back patio or whatever, and you're going to see the dust coming up, right? And so this is going to be a very visual demonstration. Um, and, you know, he basically kind of says that just as he's shaking his garment, it is a witness, he says, this is quoting uh, from, from that verse, a witness that I shook your, antiquity, your, your iniquities from my soul, uh, that, and that I stand with brightness before him and am rid of your blood. Right, and so he's kind of using the garment as a simile for the people. He's shaking his garment to stress this idea that he, by testifying to the people, has rid his garments of their blood. Uh, another example that actually comes to mind is uh, Pilate when he's handing um, Jesus over to the Jews for crucifixion and he washes his hands, right? The symbol is saying, look, I'm washing my hands of this. I have nothing to do with it. This is on your heads. And that's kind of, Jacob's now saying, your sins are on your heads. Uh, I'm, I've washed my garments of, of your sins. Um, so uh, I, hope, I hope that wasn't too jumbled or confusing. And uh, I hope, uh, I, again, I wish I had some exact examples of, of the shaking of the garment and what 
the implications of that specific action might have been in antiquity. Uh, but uh, there is, like I said, some cultural context for this kind of gesture, this kind of action taking place in a setting uh, such as the one Jacob's in. All right. James Wright asks, Jacob's comments about hell in chapter 9 seem to reflect a pre-LDS understanding of the plan of happiness, more in line with mainstream Christianity, though his preaching on the atonement, resurrection, and final judgment do reflect our beliefs. Was Jacob aware of the kingdoms of glory? Did he hold back a bit to spur a fear of hell to encourage repentance? Good question. In general, in the Book of Mormon, we don't really see a lot of evidence for the kingdoms of glory in the Book of Mormon. And whether that's because they did not know about them or, or they chose not to include it for whatever reason in their writings or in their preaching and stuff, it's impossible to say. I don't know. Since we do believe things are taught line upon line and precept upon precept, I don't have any problem believing that this was an aspect of the plan of salvation that they just hadn't learned yet. It hadn't been revealed. With that in mind, though, I do think it's interesting uh, when we actually look at what Jacob says about hell in verses 10 through 12 of, of 2 Nephi 9, uh, there's kind of this indication that hell delivers up its dead. And it's this temporary thing that the resurrection, when we're resurrected, those who are in hell will be delivered from it. So there's some notion that hell is really only a temporary state, which is consistent with, with our own teachings on, you know, spirit paradise and spirit prison. And Jacob does mention paradise as well in, in uh, chapter 9. I'm blanking on the verse, but, you know, so he seems to have a little bit of an understanding of, of the spirit world and the temporal nature of hell. Even though he does use the term endless torment and, you know, lake of fire and brimstone and all that stuff. I would actually suggest maybe it's the, the most sensible way to read endless torment for me. In this passage, at least, I haven't done a systematic study of all the references, but it seems to me what he's describing is constant torment. That when you're in hell, you are constantly being tormented. And that is, it's unrelenting, right? It's not like, yeah, you'll be tormented from three to five, but from six to seven, you can, you can rest and recover before the next tormenting session begins. It's just, it's constant torment when you're in hell. But you can be delivered from that, right? And, and that's kind of the message here is the resurrection in the resurrection will, who, you know, will all be delivered from the spirit world and those who are in spirit prison or hell will also be delivered from that. But it's constant in the sense, it's endless in the sense that it's constant, there's no reprieve, there's no breaks, there's no end to it except being delivered out of it. If there was no resurrection, there was no atonement, there would be no deliverance from that and it would be endless. I hope that. I hope that makes a little sense. But good question. Again, last one here is from McKay Heasley again. And he asked, I have often wondered about the various prophecies in the Book of Mormon of the Jews being restored to their lands when they begin to believe in Christ. I've heard some suggest that uh, they were restored to their lands when Israel was made an independent state in 1948. But I don't think that was accompanied by a conversion to Christ. Do you have any insights about the fulfillment of this prophecy? Only in so much that I, I don't think it's been fulfilled yet. I agree with you that the formation of Israel in 1948 did not, at least not completely fulfill what Jacob has prophesied here. And there are other similar prophecies, of course. I think those still await yet future fulfillment. And yeah, so I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have much more to 
to offer on that, but I agree. I think there's more to come for those prophecies. All right, with that, uh, we're done. Like I said, that was the last question. I hope you guys can go enjoy your Valentine's Day, spend time with family and loved ones. Um, And thanks for listening. And by the way, if you enjoyed this discussion, you'll probably like the Scripture Plus app if you haven't already downloaded that. You know, there's a lot of uh, great resources and and materials. Some of the resources I talked about in this very uh, video can be accessed through Scripture Plus. So if you haven't already downloaded that, you're looking to enhance or upgrade your scripture study experience or not need me to answer your questions or be smarter than me, actually, because there's a lot in there I don't even know. Check out the Scripture Plus app from Book of Mormon Central. It's available for Android and Apple devices through, uh, you know, the Apple Store, Google Play Store and things like that. All right. Thanks.